We welcome all of you who are um, joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting here at Central Campus, along with those of you meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, South Calgary, in Bridgeland, and also in Bears Paw. This weekend, we're jumping back into our series in Romans, and to introduce us to the theme that we're going to be studying today, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself so disgusted by a person's lifestyle or their morality or their larger-than-life ego or so angry and sickened by a crime or an injustice that they committed that in your heart you judge them, you put them behind bars and you threw away the keys? Maybe it was someone who rejected you and the relationship that meant everything to you. Maybe it was someone who hurt or abused someone that you care about. Maybe it was someone who cheated you out of your life savings. I doubt that there is a person who, um, it, that's hearing me today who hasn't had uh, these kinds of thoughts and feelings um, from time to time. Well, keep that in mind as, as we read and study the next uh, scripture passage in our study here in Romans chapter 2. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand and to join me in reading our scripture lesson today. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word and its instruction for life. And Lord, I pray that you would help us now to focus and to seek to understand what it is you're saying in the passage we're studying today. I ask you also to soften our hearts that we may receive what it is you're saying to us, and then, Lord, you give us the courage to do what you're calling us to do. We pray all of this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, those of you who have been tracking this series... You will recall that in the first five chapters, the Apostle Paul is essentially giving an extensive explanation of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel fundamentally is the good news of how we can have a personal relationship or friendship with Jesus. And Paul basically says, before I tell you the good news, I need to tell you the bad news first. I need to tell you what it is that's keeping us from having an authentic friendship with God. And in the first two chapters of Romans, he spells out the problem in great detail. 
It's a worldview that says, I don't need God in my life. I want to be boss and be in control. I don't want anyone telling me what is true. I don't want anyone telling me what is right or wrong or how I'm supposed to live my life. It's a defiant, rebellious spirit that says, I will do what I want to do. And God calls uh, the heart of this attitude and mindset sin, which is at its core is pride. And in chapter 1, Paul spells out in graphic detail what happens to a society that rebels against God or just flat out rejects him. God turns them over, is what Paul says. He turns them over to their self-centered, evil, and wicked ways. He lets them do what it is they want to do and allows them to reap the consequences of their choices. It's a very heartbreaking picture of the world, of a world without God. And as you read the first chapter, it's hard to believe that Paul is describing life 2,000 years ago. Because we all know that these things took place in our city, our nation, and around the world this past week. Now, after describing those who rebel against God or who reject God in chapter 1, in chapter 2, Paul turns the spotlight on another group of people who are standing in the corner feeling a bit smug and self-righteous. As they listen to Paul describe the tragic moral decline of humanity, these moralists are thinking to themselves, you know, I, I don't belong in this picture. Romans 1 isn't talking about me. I'm not like these people. I don't reject God. I'm not full of wickedness and evil schemes. I'm a law-abiding, clean-living, respectable person. Yes, our world is a mess, but that's because of the abusers, the criminals, the pimps, and the perverts. But I'm not one of those. I'm a pretty good person. Now, these people could be referred to as respectable people. Respectable people are those who believe that they are right with God because they live a decent moral life. Well, Paul is concerned that people not have a false confidence in what it means to be a Christ follower, that they're not placing their hope in the wrong things. Which leads me to ask, how do you know if you're trusting in the right things before your salvation? Well, that's the focus of chapter 2. In verses 1 to 5, which we're going to focus on today, Paul teaches that one symptom that you might be trusting in the wrong thing is a judgmental and critical spirit. You see, often it is out of our own insecurity, our feelings of inadequacy, our fears, or perhaps just a desire to promote ourselves, that we find ourselves comparing ourselves with other people, which often tempts us to be critical, to find fault, to put down, or in Paul's words, to judge people. Of even greater concern to Paul, however, is when we compare ourselves with others spiritually. 
because it can give a false sense of security that we are more acceptable to God because our lives are so much better than the person that we're judging or the person we're critical of. And so he warns us about the danger of judging others and makes a case for why we should not judge. In the five verses that we read together a moment ago, Paul makes a case for one major truth. Only God has the right to judge. Of course, like our Heavenly Father, we should despise sin. We should hate lying, selfishness, envy, greed, gossiping, arrogance, slander, sexual immorality, murder, boastful pride, and every other kind of sin because sin destroys. It destroys lives. It destroys marriages and families, communities, and nations. No question, God calls us to despise evil, but we're not called to despise the evildoer. He will deal with the sinner. We're called to love others, regardless of who they are, what they have done, or even what they do. God is the judge. We are not. And here in verse 1 to 5, Paul gives us two reasons why we're not to judge others. First of all, we must not judge others because we're, not, we're unworthy to judge. Look at verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You know, I don't like the thought that I can be self-righteous at times. I don't like the thought that I can be a hypocrite at times. It hurts just saying it. It hurts less when I say it about myself than when you say it about me, but it still hurts. But if I'm honest, I am often blind to my sins and to my faults. In Matthew 7, Jesus talks about why we're unqualified to judge others. And he says in verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I love Jesus' humor here. He's saying, buddy, you aren't in any position at all to judge others because you've got this big two-by-four protruding out of your eye. You are blind to your own sins and faults. So how might we be blind to our own sins? Well, for one, we tend to accuse others and excuse ourselves. I don't gossip. I'm just sharing a prayer concern. I'm not critical. I'm discerning. I'm not being negative. I'm being realistic. I'm not unreliable. I'm just an easygoing, fun-loving, go-with-the-flow kind of person. Furthermore, we tend to maximize other people's sins and minimize our own. Ever notice this in your life? 
When someone else sins, well, we call it what it is. When we do, we find a more acceptable word or phrase to describe our sin. Other people lie and they cheat. We simply stretch the truth. Others are disloyal. We're simply protecting our rights. Others steal. We borrow. Jesus says, this is why you are unworthy to judge. You have a big, fat plank in your own eye. We may try to make ourselves feel better by comparing our righteousness with other people, but Paul warns we are often as guilty as those that we're judging. And if we don't repent of our critical judgmental spirit, we face the same judgment that they do. Look at verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? So first of all, we're not to judge because we are unworthy to judge. Secondly, we're not to judge because we're unqualified to judge. Look at verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Our God is all-knowing, and he is the truth. He knows the truth about every person, including each one of us. So his judgments are right, and they are just. We, on the other hand, we're human, we're fallible, and we're sinful. We don't know all the facts about a person's past. We don't know their motives. We also don't know their future in terms of what God may yet want to do in and through their life. As someone said, dare we judge a book while the chapters um, are yet unwritten? Or pass a verdict on a painting while the artist still holds the brush? How can we judge or dismiss a person until God's work is complete? You see, the difference between God and us is that we tend to focus on what a person is, whereas God focuses on what that person can become through Jesus Christ. In our culture today, when we disagree with someone or don't like what they say or stand for, we no longer care about them as people made in the image of God. We see them as our enemy. We write them off. We judge them, label them. We shame them, slander them. We cancel them. We slam the door shut and we lock it. But our God is the God of second chances. The God of do-overs. For those who humble themselves and ask for his forgiveness and grace. And he calls us not to judge people or to cancel people, but actually to extend grace to them even as we've received his grace. To treat them with dignity and respect and to seek to know them, care for them, to understand them so that one day they would come to know Jesus and realize that he is the way to eternal life, that he is the truth. He's the source of a full life. So here's a practical suggestion. When you're inclined to judge or to jail someone in your heart, rather than do what you're unqualified and I'm unqualified to do, pray for that person instead. 
that God might help them grow and change and also give you and me the grace to love them when they just seem unlovable to us. I mean, think about where King David would be without a God of second chances. Think of where the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter would be without the God of second chances. Think about where any of us would be were it not for the God of second chances. Now in Matthew 7, Jesus gives a third reason we should not judge others. In verse 1 he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. In this passage, Jesus warns that when we judge, we need to realize that we're going to be judged. Furthermore, the standard we use in judging others will be the standard others use in judging us. Look at verse 2, Matthew 7. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so, for example, if you're critical of other people's parenting techniques, well, expect other parents, you know, that you've kind of told how to be proper parents, expect them to apply the same standard that you've communicated with a little bit of interest added on. If you judge people's commitment to the Lord, if you judge a person's commitment to their marriage or to their family, if you judge the sincerity of their faith or their lifestyle or their integrity or their ethics, if you judge their driving habits hmm, or their work ethic, however you judge others, prepare to be judged by the same measure and then some. But not only will we be judged by other people, we will also be judged by God. In Romans 2, 5, Paul warns judgmental people who have a stubborn and an unrepentant heart. And he says this, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. On the other hand, if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and you've developed, you know, you wake up one day and you realize that you've actually developed a very judgmental, critical spirit, well, you're not going to face God's wrath because, remember, Christ took God's wrath upon himself on the cross when he died in our place. So we're not going to face God's wrath, but we are going to face his discipline in this life. And his discipline is not always pleasant. Hebrews 12, 7 says, like a loving parent, the Lord disciplines those he loves. So having a judgmental, critical spirit toward others is serious business in the eyes of the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 11 says, if we don't judge ourselves and repent we will be judged or disciplined by our Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
Paul gives a fourth reason why we are not to judge others. He teaches that when we judge others, we are actually destroying the work of God in the church. Let me explain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is speaking to the church. And in verse 16, he writes this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now, when we think of being called God's temple, we immediately think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, which says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? But here in 1 Corinthians 3, if you study it carefully, you'll see that Paul is not just saying that each of our bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but he's also saying that the Corinthian church, the local assembly of believers, is a temple of God, being built to the glory of God. In other words, he's saying that the Christ followers who make up Center Street Church are a temple of God that he, Jesus, is building. Now, please don't misunderstand. He's not saying that the physical walls of our facilities are the temple of God. No, he's saying that we, the people of God, who are part of Center Street Church, we are the temple of God, and that this temple of God the church is under construction. He's building us individually, but also all together as a church. The foundation upon which the temple is being built is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And Paul says to the church at Corinth and to our church today, keep building my kingdom Keep adding to the work of those who have gone before you. But then he adds this, essentially. But whatever you do, don't mess with my church. Because the Lord won't tolerate anyone who does. Look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together, you together, the church, is that temple. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying if you are trying to tear down or divide the church that Christ is building, God won't stand for it. It's all right to disagree over strategies, over priorities, and other such issues and to express our views, even have a healthy debate about our views. It's okay to have differing viewpoints on matters that the Bible does not fully explain. It's okay to challenge teaching that is not aligned with the clear teaching of Scripture. We're encouraged to do so. But friends, if the church and its leadership is sincerely seeking to honor Christ and his word and are committed to leading and living the way of Jesus and in the spirit of Jesus, and we, on the other hand, are so bent on having our own way that our heart motivation is no longer to see God's will be done and God's word upheld and preached, but instead to see 
our will be done, our wishes, our viewpoints, our traditions, our ideas upheld. And instead of supporting and encouraging and building up the church, we use every opportunity to judge and be critical of the church and its leadership and to stir up dissension and division in the church. Then what does this scripture say God will do? Well, read it for yourself. Look at verse 17 again. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. I don't know what all that means, and I don't know what it all entails. But I do know the church is the bride of Christ, the apple of his eye. And he will deal with any person or with any movement outside the church or inside the church that's bent on destroying his bride. And so we see from the words of Paul, also from the words of Jesus here, at least four reasons why we are not to judge or have critical spirit. And I think we would all admit we too often give into the temptation to judge and to be critical of others. So how do we safeguard ourselves from a judgmental and a critical spirit? Well, first of all, we need to judge ourselves and repent. To repent means to change our mind. It means to turn around and to go the other way. When God's Spirit reveals that I have a critical, judgmental spirit towards someone, then I need to repent. If the spirit reveals that I am seeing someone as my enemy, that I am treating them with contempt and disgust, and I'm canceling them, I need to repent. If the spirit of God reveals self-righteous pride in my life, then I need to repent. If the spirit of God reveals that I have a critical, judgmental spirit toward my church, then I need to repent. If we do not repent, if we don't change our mind and our attitude, and we stubbornly continue judging and demonizing another person or group of people, Paul warns us here, we are presuming on the grace and the patience of God. In fact, in verse 5, he implies that our refusal to repent may actually be a sign that we aren't a follower of Christ at all. Look at verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? In this passage, Paul's reminding us that God is kind. And as our Lord, he's calling us to be kind. God doesn't make us pay every time we sin on the spot. He is tolerant. He is slow to enact his judgment. He's patient, which means he gives us time. You know, people today, they say, how can a loving God permit injustice that takes place in the world? How can he allow tyrants to murder innocent people? How can he allow godless people to hurt others and bring so much pain and destruction 
to our planet? Why doesn't he judge these people and just take them out? And yet the question we should ask is, why didn't he judge me yesterday when I said that sharp, caustic word to my wife or to my child or to a friend? Why didn't he disable my hand when I stole something or when I used it as a weapon to take my anger out on somebody? Why didn't he strike me down when I slandered someone on the phone this morning? No, I really didn't do that, but you get the point. You see, if God treated us according to his justice, then he wouldn't take out just the really evil people, you know, that we all think deserve to go to hell and to be wiped out. No, he would have to take us all out because we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory and the perfection of God. But, says Paul, God is kind. He's gracious, which means that he does not give us the justice we deserve, but treats us according to his mercy. Paul says God's kind. He's tolerant. He's patient. Why? Well, look at the end of verse 4. It says, so that we might come to repentance. So that we'll wake up to the realization that we are as lost and we need God's grace and forgiveness as much as all those terrible people described in Romans chapter 1. And that we would humble ourselves, repent, and we would cry out to God to save us and to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. Rather than judging others as Christians, our focus must be to constantly give the Spirit of God permission to reveal a judgmental, critical spirit in us and then to repent. When we see sin in the life of someone else, the very first thing that we should do is not to judge their sin, but actually to turn to God and to say, Lord, am I guilty of that sin in my life? Maybe I don't act it out the way they are, but am I, is the same sin going on inside of me? You see, when we do this and when we live this way, Consistently, not only will we experience life to the full, but as Christ's representatives, we will increasingly reflect his love and his character in the lives of those around us. The first safeguard against a judgmental, critical spirit is to judge ourselves and to repent. The second safeguard is to judge others with our life, not our attitudes. Not our words, but our life. Some people will never read the Bible, but they will read your life. And nothing judges people more effectively and reveals their need of God more than a life that is fully surrendered and devoted to Jesus Christ. Back in Matthew 7, 
Jesus teaches how we can learn to live this kind of life. In verse 12, Jesus summarizes his teaching on judging one another by saying this. So, on the basis of all I've said about judging, in everything, do to others what you would have them do for you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is often referred to as the golden rule. Now let me be clear. Christ's statement here, or the golden rule, is not the way to heaven. It is not the sum total of the Christian faith the way that some people have tried to make it. No, it is a profound principle that Jesus gave to govern our attitudes toward others. It applies to Christ's followers, and Jesus asks us to practice it in every area of life, not the least of which is our tendency to judge others. Daryl Johnson says, Jesus' statement here is absolutely brilliant. Jesus tells us, start by looking inward to consult our own interest and ask, If I were this person, how would I want to be treated? And then as we act toward the person out of our own interest, we find ourselves delivered from our own interest as we focus on the interests of the other person. So for example, how should I treat this person who rejected me and did an injustice to me? Well, ask yourself, if it were me who did this injustice, how would I want to be treated by this other person? So how should I treat this person I'm threatened by and I'm tempted to be critical of? Well, how would I want to be treated by this person? How should I deal with this person who I think is guilty of something, but I have no evidence, and they claim to be innocent? Well, how would I want to be treated if I was accused of something I didn't do? How should I approach the good friend of mine who is drifting in her walk with God? Well, how would I want her to approach me if I were the one drifting in my walk? with God how should I treat the person in my church who has different convictions than I do about a disputable matter or to be really relevant who has different convictions about COVID restrictions and vaccinations well Jesus would say how would you like this person to treat you how should I think about and treat my Muslim neighbor Well, Jesus would say, ask yourself, how would you like someone in the Muslim faith to think about you and to treat you? Want to know how to treat your children? Ask yourself, how would you want to be treated if you were them? Want to know how to treat your spouse? Again, ask yourself, how would you like your spouse treating you? If you want to know how you should speak to others, you know in those difficult and awkward times, like when they're seriously ill or perhaps dying, or they're going through a difficult time, 
Or maybe even those times when they're really celebrating something. Well, ask yourself, if I was in this situation, how would I want them speaking to me? Church, there is no limit to how we can apply this principle in our lives. Can you imagine how different our lives, our church, and our world would be if we did for others what we would want them to do for us? I'll close with this. A few years ago, I I read the story of a boy named Teddy Stollard, which I think sums up the heart of the message today. Teddy was an unmotivated little boy in school. He was one of those boys teachers find difficult to like and easy to judge as a problem child. Teddy was a source of great frustration for his fifth grade teacher, Miss Thompson, who all day faced his deadpan, unfocused stare. Although she said she loved all her students, Miss Thompson had to admit that deep down inside, She wasn't being honest. She didn't like Teddy. And she even received a certain perverse pleasure in marking his papers up with red ink and writing big fat F's on them. Her view of Teddy was distorted by her judgment of him and she should have known better. One day Miss Thompson was going through the students' files And she happened to come across Teddy's file. And when she read it, something began to change in her heart. This is what she read. First grade, Teddy shows promise with his work and attitude, but he has a poor home situation. Second grade, Teddy could do better. Mother seriously ill. He receives little help at home. Third grade. Teddy is a good boy, but he is just too serious. He is a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade. Teddy is very slow, but he's well behaved. His father shows no interest. Well, at Christmas, Miss Thompson's class, they all brought her presents in pretty wrappings. And they gathered around to watch her open them. She was surprised when she received a gift from Teddy. It was a crudely wrapped in brown paper, loosely held together with tape. When she opened it, out fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume. The other children began to giggle. But she had enough sense to put that bracelet on and to apply some of the perfume to her wrists. And then she asked the class, doesn't it smell lovely? When school was over and the other children had left, Teddy lingered on. He slowly made his way to her desk. And he said softly, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mom. And her bracelet looks real pretty on you too. I'm glad that you like my presence. When Teddy left, Miss Thompson got down on her knees and asked God to forgive her. She would never be the same again. 
For you see, on that day, she became a new person with a new vision. She was no longer a judgmental teacher who saw everything that was wrong in people. But as a representative of Jesus, committed to bringing healing and hope, not only to Teddy, but also to others. The log in her eye was gone. She had a clear eye now to see how to help and encourage others by the grace of God. By the end of the school year, Teddy showed dramatic improvement and had caught up with the rest of the class. After that, she did not hear from him for many years. And then one day she received a note that said, Dear Ms. Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know. I'll be graduating second in my class. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, she received another note. Dear Ms. Thompson, university was a challenge, but they just told me that I'm graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. A few years later, she received another note. Dear Ms. Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stollard, MD. I wanted you to be the first to know. And he went on to write, I'm, I'm getting married next month, and I'd be honored if you would come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You're the only family that I have left. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stollard. Miss Thompson went to that wedding, and she sat where his mother would have sat, and she earned that right. God had moved the log, the plank in her eye, and given her a clear vision. And through his spirit at work in her, had done something for Teddy that changed his life forever. And all that happened because one Christian, one Christian stopped looking for reasons to judge, to tear down, to criticize, and rather looked for opportunities to encourage, to help, to build up, to give hope, and to give healing. Because one Christ follower judged herself, repented and surrendered her life to Jesus Christ and faithfully sought to live out Jesus' words. Faithfully sought to live out Jesus' words. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do for you. May it be so in each of our lives, friends, to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs Jesus, this Jesus that we know and love. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? You know, the truth is we, we can't do this solely on our own. We need the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God to convict us to show us when we slide into this ditch of judgmentalism. We need the Spirit of God to alert us when we have this critical spirit well up inside of us. 
And we also need the Spirit of God to empower us to live the way of Jesus. And so, as we close, I want you to take a moment right now and ask yourself those questions that we have asked before. And you're really not asking yourself these questions. You're asking the Lord these questions. Lord, what what are you saying to me through the teaching of your word today? And what is it that you want me to do about it, Lord? And take a moment right now just to hear from him. And not just now, but this week. And then we're going to respond in a moment together in song. The Lord bless you as you do.